Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 32. Athens. Do you remember what the poet Thucydides said about Sparta? He said, Suppose that the city of Sparta were to become deserted. It would be difficult to believe that the Spartans were as powerful as they were. The opposite was true of Athens. The city of Athens was magnificent, and Thucydides tells us that if you looked at Athens, you would think it was much more important than it actually was. Which is not to say Athens wasn't important. In fact, quite the opposite. Athens was just as important as Sparta. The city of Athens is located in mainland Greece, just north of the Peloponnese. Athens, as we have learned, wasn't just the city. The whole region of Attica was part of the Athenian polis. Attica was over 1,000 square miles in size. The region was divided into four tribes, and each tribe provided one regiment for the army. The magnificence of the city of Athens was not matched by the farmland in Attica, which fed the population. The region is mountainous, and the farmland was poor, and there wasn't enough of it to feed the population. The poor farmland, though, was ideal for growing olives and grapes for wine, which the Athenians sold. There was also a source of silver in Attica, and the silver mines produced a lot of the precious metal, making Athens quite rich. There was plenty of marble, which the Athenians used to construct beautiful buildings. There was also a lot of clay for making pottery. The population of Athens was Ionian. The Dorians, who conquered the Peloponnese and built up Sparta, never managed to get hold of Attica. People who tried to escape from the Peloponnese when the Dorians arrived fled to Attica and became Athenians. The Athenians thought of themselves as the purest of Greeks and never really got on with the Dorians. The Ionians also settled in Asia Minor, in the western part of the modern country of Turkey. This area became known as Ionia. Like the other polis of ancient Greece, Athens was originally ruled by kings. During the 8th and 7th centuries BC, this system evolved into something a bit different. Instead of a king who ruled because he was descended from a previous king, the Athenians had a leader called an Archon. Originally the Archon, who was always from one of the aristocratic families of Athens, ruled for life, but this was then reduced to a period of ten years. By the early 7th century, the system had changed even more. Instead of a single Archon who was in charge, there were nine Archons. Yep, nine. Instead of serving for ten years, the Archons only served for one. Some of the Archons had special jobs. One was called the Basileus, which actually means king. He wasn't a king, though. He was mostly in charge of religion. The actual head archon was called the eponymous archon, and the year in which he served was named after him. The ancient Greeks did not number their years as we do now. In Athens, the year was named after the eponymous archon. The other archon who had special duties was called the polemarch, which means war ruler. He was in charge of the army. The other six archons mainly managed the law and sat in judgment of legal cases. Even though the archons still came from the most important families in Athens, they were elected by the assembly, which was made up of all adult citizens. When an archon finished his term, he became a member of the council of the Areopagus. This council had many powers and met on a hill called the Areopagus, named after the war god Ares. Athens became wealthy through trading with the other polis and other civilizations. Unfortunately, some people became richer and some became poorer. There were a number of different classes of people, including the Thetes, who were the poorest citizens, and the Hippies, who were rich enough to own horses. The Hippies became the cavalry in the army when there was a war on. 
All this was going on while many of the other Greek polys were falling under the rule of tyrants. Athens, it seemed, had a different way of managing itself, so there was less chance of a tyrant taking over. We can see this in the story of Chilon of Athens. Chilon was a true Greek hero. Real, not mythical. He was an Athenian citizen who had been victorious at the Olympic Games. He was married to the daughter of the tyrant of Megara, one of the polys right next to Athens. He seemed quite happy with his life until he went to see the oracle at Delphi and was given some advice. Advice, as it turned out, that wasn't very good. He was told to go to Athens during the festival of Zeus and seize power. Chilon took this to mean the Olympics, and given that he'd just won Olympic prizes, he stormed into the city and tried to take charge. The people of Athens were having none of it, and pretty soon he and his supporters were trapped in the Temple of Athena on the Acropolis. The eponymous archon at the time was called Megacles. He and his forces couldn't kill Chilon in the temple, as this would offend Athena, and was definitely against the rules. Megacles told Chilon that he could leave the temple and then leave Athens unharmed. If he agreed to give up trying to take power, he could go in peace. Chilon was running out of food, so he came out and was promptly killed by Megacles and his family. Although ridding Athens of a tyrant was a good thing, killing him was against the law. Megacles and his whole family, called the Alcminidae, were declared cursed and exiled from the city. The Alcminidae, though, will be back. Athens continued to prosper, but the farmers continued to get poorer. The people became unhappy with the rulers. Even though they were voted in and only served for one year, they were still members of the aristocracy. To be an archon, you still had to be from one of the important families of Athens. One of the worst things about this was that only the nobles knew the law. Nothing was written down, and only the important families were allowed to be judges. The people wanted change, and they got it. Unfortunately, it didn't quite work out how they would have liked. A man called Draco was appointed to write down the laws so the people knew where they stood. This he did. He also stated what the punishment for crimes should be, and the punishments were severe. If you killed a man, the punishment was death. If you set fire to your neighbour's house, the punishment was death. If you stole a grapefruit, the punishment was death. It is said that Draco was asked why the punishments were the same for really bad crimes as they were for the ones that were not so bad. He said, If you commit a small crime, then the punishment should be death, and I can't think of a more severe punishment than death for the bigger crimes. Nowadays, if very strict punishments are seen as far too harsh, then they are called draconian. This word comes from Draco. The Athenians now had a code of laws, though, and at least they knew where they stood. They got on with life, like the other polys, and, ex and expanded overseas and set up colonies. They used their colonies to supply grain to Athens so that they had enough to eat, even though their own farmland was poor. About 20 years after Draco wrote his law code, one of the greatest men in the history of Athens came to power. His name was Solon, and he was a member of one of the aristocratic families. He was a very clever man, who wrote poetry and loved learning. Solon became the eponymous archon, sometime around 594 BC. Afterwards, he joined the Council of the Areopagus, and most scholars think that it was as a member of this council that he reformed the way Athens was run. A lot of what we know about Solon comes from the writings of another of ancient Greece's great men. His name was Aristotle, and he was writing many years later.
Aristotle liked things nice and neat, so it may be that things happened a little differently from the way he described them. The main problem in Athens at the time was with the farmers. As we have heard, many of them had not been able to make enough money from their farms. They had borrowed money from richer people in order to keep going, but had not been able to pay the money back. Unfortunately, many of the loan agreements were not very nice. If a farmer could not pay his debt, he and his children became slaves, owned by the man who had lent him the money. This happened to an awful lot of farmers. Citizens of Athens were becoming slaves. Similar things had happened in Megara, and they'd ended up with a tyrant. The Athenians didn't want a tyrant, so they asked Solon to change things. Solon accepted, but made them promise they wouldn't change any of his new laws for ten years without asking him first. This was agreed, and Solon was appointed as the Archon for the year. He wasn't one of nine Archons, though. Nope, Solon was appointed as the only Archon for that year. For one year, he had complete power. Solon went to work. The first thing the great man did was cancel most of the punishments introduced by Draco. The death penalty was still in place for murder, but the Athenians were no longer under threat of execution if they stole a grapefruit. The next thing he did was even more important. He cancelled all of the debts of the farmers, which could have meant that they became slaves. No longer could an Athenian citizen end up being forced into slavery just because he couldn't afford to pay back a loan. This was great for the Athenians, but it didn't solve the crisis. Farmers could still not afford to pay their bills. So Solon made it easier. He split up the large estates of land and made farms much smaller. More people were able to work farms and survive. He encouraged Athenians to grow things which were easier to grow, like olives. Olive oil was very valuable and could be sold overseas. He introduced new coins. He also made it easier to buy and sell things abroad, and many people became traders and merchants. Food was brought in from abroad and from Athenian colonies, paid for with the money obtained from selling olive oil. Solon did one very big thing which improved the life of people living in Athens. He allowed people from outside Attica who had skills to become Athenian citizens. This meant that very skilled and useful people from abroad were allowed to own land and were happy to settle in the polis. Their work made Athens even more prosperous. Solon changed the way Athens was run. He arranged the people of Athens into four classes. The classes were purely based on how wealthy you were. No more were they based on which family you were born into. The richest were called the Pentecost Yomadimnoi. What a great word. Next came the Hippais and the Zugatai, and lastly the Thetes. Anyone from either of the top two classes could become Archons. Suddenly far more people were allowed to become leaders of the city. The Zugatai provided the hoplites for the army. Every citizen was allowed to be part of the Assembly of Athens, and any could be chosen to judge trials. This is the beginning of the system of trial which we use today, where people accused of crimes are judged by other people chosen from the public. Solon implemented his reforms in his eponymous year and promptly went on holiday. Remember, he had agreed that his reforms would not be changed for ten years without talking to him first. So he went travelling for ten years so nobody could find him and ask for things to be changed. Solon's changes mostly made things better, but the changes to the government didn't work too well. The people in the different regions didn't get on with each other and they began to quarrel. 
The people from the shore argued with the people from the plains, who argued with the people from beyond the hills. The three groups did not get on well at all. They struggled with each other for power. The people from beyond the hills were the most unhappy with the reforms of Solon. When Solon came home from his travels, he realised the leader of the people from beyond the hills, a man called Pisistratus, was dangerous and may try to take power for himself. He was a hero of a recent war with Megara and was very popular. Solon was right. Pisistratus really did want power. He tried three times. First, in about 560 BC, he pretended that he was in danger and demanded that Athens provide him with some soldiers as a bodyguard. He stormed up to the Acropolis and used his new bodyguard to seize power. He ruled for five years, but was overthrown and exiled. After about three years, Pisistratus tried again. This time he attempted to win power with one of the silliest tricks ever played in ancient times. He persuaded a very beautiful and very tall woman to dress up in white clothing and pretend to be the goddess Athena. He sent word that the great Athena was bringing Pisistratus home to rule in Athens. Soon he rode into the city on a golden chariot with a pretend Athena at his side. Again he was successful, but the trick was soon discovered and Pisistratus was exiled again. A few years later he tried once more. In about 546 BC, after some military victories, Pisistratus arrived with a large force. This time there was no stopping him and he ruled Athens as a tyrant until he died in 527 BC. Now, Remember that a tyrant in ancient Greece was not necessarily a bad ruler. Pisistratus was in fact a very good ruler and was immensely popular. He tried to distribute power and benefits ra rather than keep them to himself. The higher classes were allowed to keep their archon ships. For the lower classes he cut taxes and created a band of travelling judges to provide justice for the citizens of Athens. Pisistratus made Athens beautiful and supported art and poetry. He ordered copies to be made of Homer's two epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. It is thought the versions we have today are copies of the ones ordered by Pisistratus. All good things come to an end, though. When Pisistratus died, he was succeeded by his two sons, Hippias and Hipparchus. They ruled pretty well until Hipparchus was murdered. Hippias then became frightened and turned into a cruel ruler. In 510... Hippias and the family of Pisistratus were overthrown by one of the descendants of that family exiled years before the Alcminidae. This man was called Cleisthenes. Cleisthenes arrived in Athens, returning from exile in 511 BC. He stood as Archon, but lost to a man called Isagoras. Isagoras exiled Cleisthenes again. Isagoras, though, tried to give the aristocrats more power and take power away from the people. The Athenians had just got rid of their tyrants and they were very unhappy about this. Cleisthenes was recalled and Isagoras was overthrown. In about 508, Cleisthenes became the leader in Athens. Unlike many leaders who became tyrants, Cleisthenes changed things so that power was given back to the people. Cleisthenes changed everything. He realised the tribes would continue to fight each other. He needed to find a way of making things fair and separating the tribes so the people from the shore, the people from the plains and the people from beyond the hills would stop fighting with each other. His solution was brilliant. Cleisthenes separated the tribes into what were called deems. Each deem had an assembly where they elected leaders. 
he joined together deems from each of the regions and merged them into ten new tribes. Each of these new tribes contained people from all the regions of Attica. Suddenly, one neighbourhood in a region was in a different tribe from the next neighbourhood. The people from different regions suddenly had to agree on what to do. Cleisthenes created a council of 500 people, 50 from each of his new tribes. The 50 people were elected by the people. Everyone had a say in what is going on. This was getting close to real democracy, like the system we have in Britain or the USA today. Cleisthenes called his new system Isonomia, which means equal under the law. The nine archons were still elected each year, and the eponymous archon was still the overall leader. Cleisthenes also introduced something else. If a person became too powerful or unpopular, he could be exiled from Athens for ten years. If 6,000 citizens voted for someone to be exiled, then he was exiled. This was called ostracism. It seems that Cleisthenes himself may have been ostracised after he introduced his reforms, because there is no record of what happened to him or where and when he died. So, Athens became a fair place to live where everyone had a say in what went on. It seems from our story that Athens didn't fight any wars. This is not entirely true. Athens fought against Megara and other local polis, but they didn't go and conquer their neighbours like the Spartans did. Not long after the reforms of Cleisthenes, though, the Athenians would find themselves plunged into a war that lasted 50 years. Far away in Asia Minor, the Ionian Greeks were in trouble. The great Persian Empire had been expanding, and in the middle of the 6th century BC, they invaded Greek territory. The Persian leader, Cyrus the Great, completely conquered Ionia in 547 BC. The Persians struggled to rule the independent-minded cities of Ionia, and so they appointed tyrants to rule each of them. This didn't go down very well with the Greeks. Before long, a full-scale war broke out. The Athenians would play a key role in the fighting. Next week, we'll follow the course of that war, including the famous Battle of Marathon. Until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.